So good, so good. Well, let me say hello to all of you here on our campus. Let me welcome everybody joining us online. We are continuing in 1 John in our In the Light teaching series that we have been in all summer. And good news, we have made it to chapter five, right? So we're gonna pick it up today in verse one of chapter five. And uh, I'm excited to share the message with you today. Now, let me give you the title first. The title of today's message is A Believer on God's terms. Now, if you were with us last week, the title last week was Love on God's Terms. And what we talked about is that God is good enough to define for us what love is. That's helpful because all of us have different experiences with that word. And, and what we talked about was how we can't project our definition of love onto God's word. We need to let him define for us what love actually is. And similarly, what we're gonna look at today is this idea of what does it actually mean to be a believer, a Christ follower, a Christian, someone who's been born again. See, that's a term and an expression that's thrown around in a lot of different ways. And what we see in God's word in this passage today is that God's word lays out for us clearly what a believer is, what their life is supposed to look like and the impact that we have actually been called to make. But we've kind of all had different experiences. In fact, maybe you've had some bad experiences with some people who called themselves Christians. Welcome to the club, all right? So hey, that's gonna go with the territory. But if we're not careful, we can project that onto Jesus. And all of a sudden, we're holding him up in a light because of some negative experiences we've had with other people. So here's the deal. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a believer, today's message should challenge you. Just straight up, I'm gonna tell you, today's message should challenge you. I don't want you to hear today's message through the lens of being legalistic or what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to not do. However, there are some expectations laid out for us in God's word. There's also some things that we get to celebrate. Now, if you're not yet a Christ follower, you're kinda checking things out, joining us online here on our campus. I think today's message is helpful because it can right-size biblically what it actually looks like to be a believer and maybe counter some of those negative experiences you may have had in the past. So we've broken this passage down into five smaller passages. There's a corresponding application. I want you to jot it down, type it out on your phone. It makes it more memorable, helps you put it into practice, and we'll see what God's word has to say to us today. Again, starting in verse one of chapter five, every time we see the word believe in this passage, we're gonna kind of make note of that because that's kind of the theme, the topic that we're looking at today. Verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. So we've already seen believe and we've seen the word love. Verse two, this is how we know. Now we're talking about our thoughts that we love back to our heart. How we know that we love the father because we love his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and now what? carrying out his commands. So now we've brought in some actions into this. Verse three. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So there's a whole lot happening there between love and actions and thoughts and beliefs. So, so what is this kind of first passage trying to show us today? If you're taking notes, let me get you to jot this down. A believer, again, on God's terms, a believer has alignment. Alignment in what? Their intellect, emotion, will, and all of this is observed through actions. Now, that's a lot, all right, that's a lot. You're like, point one, Pastor, you got us jumping in right now. I know, let's go, here we go, okay? That's a lot, but, but that's what this passage just said. It laid out believe, and then we started talking about love, emotions. We started talking about what we know, 
intellect. We started talking about carrying out some commands. That is our will, that is our volition. And, and, and we don't have to go into all the fancy Greek or anything like that just to make this statement. In the New Testament, when you see the word believe, it's different than how we often use the word believe. See, in typical conversation, when we say believe, what we mean is mental assent. What we mean is agree. Do you agree with this? Do you believe in this, okay? Do you believe that this team's better than that team? Or do you believe that this restaurant's better than that restaurant? And what we're asking for is agreement. But see, in the Bible, in the New Testament, this word carries with it a much greater weight than just simply agreeing. That the word believe in the New Testament involves all three aspects of who we are. Our intellect, our emotion, and our will. And a true believer that change is observable in all three areas of their life. And ultimately, it's observed in how the believer lives their life. But I also think it's helpful to think about these three categories and how the Holy Spirit begins to convict someone and move them towards salvation. Y'all know that's a process, right? Like people who are far from God, it takes a minute. So like the church I was raised in, nobody tried to make us feel bad about this, but sometimes we felt bad about this, that if we weren't leading a bunch of people to Jesus, we were doing this whole thing wrong, right? So they'd fly in some pastor, and he'd come up in local revival, and he'd talk about all the people he led to the Lord on the flight. I'm like, I don't like talking to people on flights, right? That's just me, all right? It's like, I don't know how that's supposed to work. So you're measuring conversions. Well, here's, here's something to free you up. Measure conversations. Measure conversations have a lot of gospel conversations. And in time, someone can experience conversion. But see, what the Holy Spirit does in that process is the Holy Spirit begins to convict an intellect, emotion, and will. In fact, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, let me encourage you to have a lot of gospel conversations. There's a lot of studies out there that show if people don't come to faith in Jesus Christ, by the age of 14, it greatly reduces the likelihood that will happen. Now, obviously, we wanna reach everybody in every season of life, but if you've got kids, if you've got preteens, they're really in a great place to be more receptive to the gospel, and I wanna encourage you to have gospel conversations. But as you have them, can I encourage you to look for what we look for? We have three boys that we were raising, okay? And when we have conversations with them about the gospel, we're looking to see if they're understanding it through the lens of intellect, emotion, and will. Do you understand the gospel story? Do you know what happened? Can you tell me what happened? That Jesus came, he died for the sins of the world. He walked out of the tomb on the third day. He ascended with the promise to return. Do you understand that and do you buy it? Don't just assume they buy it because you buy it. Okay? Do you believe that happened? Can you believe that happened? They go, no, I don't think that could happen. Well, then you get them a book called like The Case for Christ for Kids, and now you start walking through that. So there's got to be some mental understanding, some intellectual understanding of the gospel, but see, there's also the emotional component. Because if you fully understand what I just said, there are some emotions that go with that. When you recognize, hey, your sin put Jesus on the cross, cute little eight-year-old kid that's never heard the word no, your sin put Jesus on a cross. Okay, there's some brokenness that occurs. There's a weight to that that's also coupled with the freedom of rejoicing that that sin no longer has to keep me from God. There's some emotions that go with that. And see, then there's also volition. See, if a child understands the gospel and they feel, they feel the weight of that, do they recognize it's your call? It's not my call. If I can talk you into something, somebody else will talk you out of it. 
Do they recognize if I choose to give my life to Jesus Christ, here's what that means. My life is no longer my own. See, I'd much rather a child wrestle with that for about a month than be talked into something that they can be talked out of later in life. You see what I'm saying? Look for all three. Let the process work. Have gospel conversations, but then recognize, hey, if you claim the name of Jesus, believer on God's terms, it's gonna show up in intellect, emotion, and will. Let's keep going. Verse four. For everyone, don't miss this. We can't just skip past this verse. It's just too good. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. I mean, you should just camp out on that all day, all right? Somebody came to church today just to hear that. You have overcome not just a little bit, the whole stinking world. That's good news, all right? Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Just in case you missed it, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's some good news for you this day, today, okay? A believer is an unstoppable force. Unstoppable force. Unstoppable force. See, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, here's the deal, guys, in this world, and he looks at us now, we read God's word, you're gonna face trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's a really good verse. But sometimes we forget that verse got built upon later in the New Testament. Because what John's telling us now through the Holy Spirit is yes, Jesus overcame the world, but guess who else did as well? You. It's not just that Jesus is an overcomer, you're also an overcomer as well. This is what God's word says a believer's life is like. So here's what this means. You might get knocked down, but you get to get back up. Life may throw everything your way, it cannot throw you off. You're an unstoppable force. You're gonna face trial. You're gonna face heartache. You're gonna face pain. You're gonna go through things that are incredibly difficult. Listen to me, you are an unstoppable force. Unstoppable force, okay? Hell can't slow you down. Hell might knock you down but you get back up. You might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you're not gonna stop and camp out. You're not gonna pitch a tent. You're not gonna stay there because you're an overcomer. You're an unstoppable force. And I don't know what you're facing right now, but everything around this world would want that to keep you down. But here's what God's word says. That just can't happen. That just can't happen because you've actually already overcome what's in this world. Now, this is a reflection of the goodness of God, just for a second, right? How good is it of our God that he would put verses like this in the Bible? What a gracious God we have that would say, hey, y'all probably don't even see this because y'all are y'all, so I'm gonna make sure I point this out. (laughs) You're an overcomer, wow, thank you, God. It it, it reminds me that sometimes we get our our categories, whoop, they kind of mix up, they kind of cross over a little bit. So let's just kind of talk about this for a second. See, there's three good categories to have some understanding on. Those categories are are justice and mercy and grace, all right? So justice, hey, justice is when you get what you were supposed to get, get what you deserve. Mercy is when you get let off the hook. You don't get what you deserve. But see, grace is when you get more than you deserve, okay? 
Reminds me of a story from uh, when I was in high school. So my parents are here, uh, the next service. They're not here uh, this service, but if you hang out in the lobby long enough, you can give them a high five, fist bump, and, and a hug, and they'll love it. All right, so anyway, so my parents get to hear this in person next service. I'm 16 years old. I've been driving for about six months, and I'm on my way home one night, um, been hanging out with some friends, and I kind of lost track of time, and I'm running late. So I'm supposed to be home by a certain time, and I'm running late, and so um, I'm driving a little faster than I should, and I get to this intersection in our town, and it's a three-way stop, which you don't see those a lot. So like you got this road going this way. I need y'all to visualize with me. You got this road going this way. You got this road going this way. And this road comes out of a neighborhood, which is helpful because if you're driving this way, the likelihood of someone coming to that neighborhood is kind of rare. So it was pretty commonplace. They've actually changed the intersection now um, that when you got to that stop sign, you kind of just slowed down and you kind of looked into the neighborhood. And if nobody was coming, you could keep going, right? I know, totally breaking the law. I'm just being real, okay? So this particular night, I didn't even slow down, all right? So I knew, like, there's nobody coming out of the neighborhood. And so, like, I kind of briefly let off the accelerator, glanced in the neighborhood, just blew right through the stop sign. And as I was doing that, I noticed in the neighborhood there were some headlights coming over the hill. And I remember thinking to myself, I really hope that's not a cop. <clears throat> well, since I'm telling the story, it clearly was a police officer and about a mile down the road, blue lights cut on, he pulls me over and he walks up to the window. And this was the first experience I'd had. I'd, I've had a few cents, but anyway, so like I, uh, I'm sitting there and he pulls up and he goes, <laughs> he says, son, do, I know, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, yes, sir, I just ran that stop sign back there. I, in fact, I didn't even stop. And he looks at me, he's like, you're telling on yourself already, all right? So, uh, and he kind of laughed because I don't think he was used to getting that response. And he says, well, why did you do that? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm in a hurry, I'm running late, like I'm on my way home. And he's looking at my license and he's like, is this your home address? I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, you're heading to this address right now to be, go home to your parents. I'm like, yes, sir. And he's like, okay. And then he leaves and he goes back to the, to the car. And it felt like to me he was back there forever. I'm sure he wasn't, but it just kind of felt that way. And I'm sitting there and, you know, this is back in the dark ages where we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. You know, so I'm just kind of sitting there, you know, wondering what's the drill? How does this go? And, and he comes back, you know, a few minutes later and he gives me my license and um, he says, okay, like you're heading home, right? I said, yes, sir. He goes, okay, I need you to go on home. See, this would have been the, the part of the conversation where I said, yes, sir, thank you, and started to leave. But not me. I was dumb enough to look at him and say, don't I get a ticket? <laughs> I felt like something was missing in this whole transaction. He just looks at me like teenagers today. So, uh, and he goes, no, I'm, I'm gonna give you a warning this time, but, but you, you need to go home right now. And I'm like, yes, sir. So, and he's like, don't speed. I'm like, yes, sir. So I start leaving. And I got about 10, 15 more minutes before I get home. And, and I overanalyze everything, okay? So for the rest of the 15 minutes, I am just trying to figure out what just happened, okay? And so I'm, I'm grateful for the police officer and, and, and all that, and, and that was good. But what I'm trying to figure out, it was not a holy motivation. What I'm trying to figure out is, do I really need to tell my parents what just happened, okay? <laughs> that's what I'm trying to process because the best I can tell, they don't know. And, and that's a good thing because right now, I'm only gonna get in trouble for being late, but if I also get in trouble for running a stop sign and getting pulled over by a police officer, you know, this is kind of, so I'm just trying to figure this out. And the best I can tell, they don't know. But like, he asked me three different times, is this where you live? Is this where you're going home? And I don't know protocol, and I don't know what officers do with 16-year-olds, and I don't know, like, do they call your parents? <laughs> like, I, I don't remember this in driver's ed. Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, what's going on? And, and it's really, like, bothering me, and then it, I, it hits me, I've got a perfect solution. 
my sister has a bunch of friends over at our house right now. And that was pretty commonplace. We were kind of the house to hang out. And I knew she was gonna have a bunch of friends over and, and they were all gonna be hanging out and watching a movie and playing ping pong and doing all the fun things. And this was helpful for me to solve this dilemma because what I knew was that if an officer called my house and told my father what I did, my dad would have gotten off the phone and he would have sent everyone to the basement. I just know that's what my dad would do. Y'all go to the basement. And everybody would have gone to the basement. And when I walk in, it's gonna be a quiet house because my dad's about to sit me down and have a talking to. That's what's gonna happen, all right? But if the officer didn't call my house when I walk in, everybody's gonna have fun, there'll be a party, having a good time. And so I'm like, this is it. This is my litmus test. I'm in the clear. So y'all, I walk in the house, party ping pong balls flying everywhere, everybody's eating pizza. I'm like, I'm good, like nobody knows. Nobody knows we're good. You ever that little voice in your head? <laughs> you need to tell them. Y'all ever hear that voice, right? You need to tell them. I ignored that voice a lot in my teenage years, but this particular evening, I was like, maybe I should say something. So I waited about 10 minutes. Again, in the middle of all the chaos, I finally go, hey dad, did a police officer call here about 15 minutes ago? <laughs> He goes, yes, he did. <laughs> I go, do you wanna know why? <laughs> he goes, yes. And, and I said, well, I ran a stop sign and going driving too fast. He goes, yeah, that's what he told me too. And then he goes, now Chad, now I forgot, the, Chad is my younger brother by three years. So after going, yeah, that's what the police officer told me. He goes, Chad, you can come downstairs now. I am in bizarro world right now, right? I'm trying to figure out what just happened. My dad didn't get mad at me. Chad's been sent to his room. Everybody's playing ping pong. What is going on? Like, I can't figure this out. And my mom, who feels sorry for me, finally looks at me and she goes, let me explain to you what happened, okay? She's like, the police officer called here, you know, and we were all kind of concerned for about 10 seconds until we realized you were fine and you just run a stop sign. So your dad got off the phone and he called everybody into the kitchen and he told everybody what you had done, all right? So it's like, thanks, dad. And then he said... So we're gonna test Adam tonight. We're gonna see if he tells us the truth. So nobody say anything to him. And when he gets home, if he tells us what happened, I'm not gonna punish him. But if he doesn't tell us, I'm gonna take away his car for a month. And then he sent Chad to his room because I was Chad's ride. And he knew that Chad would tell me to tell him. So that's how Chad <laughs> got sent to his room in all of this. Chad's like, really? So that's how he ends up in his room. So what happened that night? What happened that night was I did not receive justice. Justice would have been a ticket. Justice would probably have been, you know, losing my car for a couple of weeks. Instead, I was shown mercy. First of all, by the police officer, and then second of all, by my parents. And for many of us, that is kind of how we look at the gospel. We're like, okay, I should have gone to the cross. I'm a sinner. Jesus took my sin. He went to the cross in my place. I'm so glad that, that God was gracious enough to let Jesus die in my place. But see, that's not a reflection of God's graciousness. That's a reflection of God's mercy. You didn't get what you deserve. Jesus took your place. That's mercy. But see, here's grace. God then says, you're one of my children and an heir to my throne. God then says, I'm gonna gift you with supernatural spiritual gifts that allow you to be used by me in ways you could never imagine. God then looks at you and says, you've actually overcome the world and you're an unstoppable force in this world. See, that's what God's grace looks like. It would be the same as if my parents had said, and after realizing what you've done tonight, son, we've reached the decision that from now on, every Saturday morning, the first Saturday morning of every month, we're gonna take you to the car dealership and let you pick out a brand new sports car. 
He said, it doesn't make any sense. That's borderline bad parenting. <laughs> You're rewarding his bad behavior. What do y'all think the gospel is? All we brought was our bad behavior. All we brought was our sin. Not only did God let Jesus take that from us, he then gave us a new name. He then said you're an overcomer. He then said you're an unstoppable force. Walk in the goodness and the graciousness of our God. It's a wonderful thing. Verse six. Now we're gonna get theological, okay? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is Truth, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now that matters with Old Testament context that we don't really have enough time to go into today, but just kind of make that little mental note. But let's kind of unpack these three witnesses and why that matters. So here's the application. A believer has three compelling witnesses. And the idea of having three compelling witnesses matters biblically, and it matters to you that scripture would go out of its way to give you this, because it's a reminder that Christianity isn't a bedtime story. It's not like we believe in Jesus and unicorns. Like there's actually evidence for the thing that we believe in that we've given our life to. So what's the first witness of these three compelling witnesses? John says it's the water. Now there's some debate about what John means here. I believe that what he's referencing here is the baptism of Jesus. Because there was a false belief that when Jesus was baptized, it was like the Christ spirit descended upon him, and then when he was crucified, the Christ spirit left him. And so what John's trying to right-size is that that did not happen, that's a false belief, and the water baptism of Jesus is significant for a number of ways. First of all, Jesus didn't need to get baptized. He wasn't repenting of anything. He's setting an example. He's identifying with the sinners for whom he's come to rescue. And at Jesus' baptism, God the Father speaks, the Holy Spirit descends. And so the water baptism of Jesus is significant. Now, the second compelling witness is the blood. And we talk a lot about the blood here at New Hope because, see, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You gotta have a both and. See, Jesus has to both live a perfect life and shed his blood for his payment on the cross to be sufficient. If he had just lived a perfect life and not shed his blood, it wouldn't have been sufficient. If he had shed his blood without living a perfect life, he would just have been another person who died on the cross. And crucifixion was a common thing, a common way for people to die. It was the Roman Empire's favorite way of executing people. But it's the shedding of the blood that allows us to experience salvation. It's the shedding of the blood that satisfies God's wrath towards sin. And I just feel that when we draw attention to this, it's a good opportunity for us to also draw attention to communion. And so we're gonna do that here just for a second because, again, sometimes familiarity with a story can breed a little bit of a casual response to the story. But don't ever get past the picture of a perfect savior whose body is broken on a cross and whose blood is shed for you and whose blood is shed for me. And so when we receive the bread, we are reminded of that, that Jesus willingly allowed his body to be broken for us so that we could experience salvation. And then when Jesus shed his blood, he was able to rightly say, it is finished. 
And when he said it is finished, what he was saying is the payment has been made, paid in full. There's nothing else anyone will ever have to do to make the payment for sin. And so Jesus, we say thank you for allowing your body to be broken, to shed your blood, when we should have been the ones to pay the price for our sin, that you willingly did that for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. But see, here's the thing. Aside from that, which is really a phrase that's even hard to say out loud, God went out of his way to show us greater evidence that when Jesus shed his blood, something significant had just happened. In fact, like if, and I often wonder about this, like if, if, if the technology we have now had been around back then, no one would be calling into question any of these things. And I sit around and wonder about these things. Well, then why didn't God and his sovereignty allow, and then God kind of brings me back to this really simple word in his word called faith, that it requires some faith, right? But when Jesus said it is finished, if you had been there that day, and if you had been there for the next month, you would have witnessed things that had never been seen in all of human history and things that have not been seen since. Let me take you to one passage. This is an interesting passage. This is a passage from Matthew chapter 27 that never showed up in a children's Sunday school class that I attended growing up in church, okay? Like we had felt bored Jesus. Felt bored Jesus never illustrated this story that I'm gonna read to you, okay? I'm just telling you right now. Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53. At that moment, what moment? When Jesus breathed his last breath. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's a whole sermon, okay? So we'll talk about that at a later time. I wanna get to the next part because it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. That typically happens when there's an earthquake. So that's what happened. An earthquake to the extent that tombs were broken open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Never saw that on a felt board. Never saw it once. <laughs> they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It's in the Bible. Wow. I need you to think about that for a second. You're post-resurrection, you're in downtown Jerusalem, and Larry, who passed away last week, comes walking by. <laughs> what is going on, okay? This is God's way of making sure there's no doubt, there's no question. Thousands of people have been crucified up on that hill. Jesus was different. Jesus was different. More people placed their faith in Jesus Christ in the subsequent six months after his crucifixion and resurrection than probably any other six month time in all of human history. Do you see why? These things are happening. So these aren't just words that we read. Okay, yeah, you know, we had the water witness. That's cool, blood. No, God's going out of his way to make sure there's some things that are happening. And, and listen, you, you probably got more questions than answers now after reading that passage. You know what God says? I'm perfectly comfortable with your questions. I'll tell you one day when we get to heaven, okay? Oh, you'll find out Larry's story. It's pretty cool, all right? So that's the whole thing, all right? Good story. So there's just some things happening. Now, what's the third witness, okay? I spent too much time on that one. I like that one. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a witness to who Jesus is. You wanna study this this week. Go to Philippians chapter two. Fantastic passage. It helps us recognize the selfless nature of our Savior 
therefore drawing attention to the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit in Jesus's three years of public ministry. How Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you ever wonder, what do I look for in the Trinity? How do I look for the Trinity in the Bible? Study the three years of Jesus's public ministry. Jesus is doing the will of the Father. He's clear about that over and over and over through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've got the water, we've got the blood, we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got those who testify and give us compelling witness to who Jesus is. And for a believer, that helps build our confidence. Verse nine, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is a testimony of God, which he has given us about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. So here's the fourth application. A believer has their own testimony and the testimony of God. God moved all of human history to make sure we could see his son was actually his son. God's never thrown the weight of all of human history behind a person like he did Jesus Christ. We literally mark our calendars around the birth of Jesus Christ. There's never been anyone else that God has put more of his own testimony and integrity and character on the line with than his son, Jesus Christ. But then see, we also have our own testimony. What's your testimony? What's your story? Do you know that in the New Testament, this is so great, this is so good to think about, that in the first century, when Christianity was spreading like crazy, they weren't going around sharing the good news from the New Testament because they were writing the pages of the New Testament. What were they sharing? Their story. They were sharing their story. Hey, this is who I was before I gave my life to Jesus. This is what's been happening since. And this is the hope I have for the future. So what's your testimony? What's your story? What was going on in your life when you met Jesus? What are some markers along the way that you can look back and go, I know there was a substantial encounter experience with the Lord. It could happen in here on a Sunday. It could happen anytime. It could happen in your own time with the Lord. And then what's the Lord up to in your life these days? It's your testimony. If you're, if you're new, maybe it's your first time with us today. We're so glad you're here. Uh, we just moved here back in June. So I just started here in June. And one of the things we've been doing in the series is kind of sharing some stories. And I'm sharing my story a little bit along the way. And I've been hearing a lot of y'all's stories. And I love getting to hear your stories. And so um, I thought maybe today I'd just kind of drop in, you know, part of my testimony, um, how I got called to ministry. So I grew up in a great church. I love church. I love being a part of a church. Um, I never wanted to be a pastor, not because I didn't love my pastors. My pastors had great influence in my life. I'm forever grateful for them. Um, it was because I wanted to be like my dad. And my dad had his own business, and I watched how he used that business to be a light in the world and, and share his, his uh, testimony and, and witness to people and disciple men. And, and, and I wanted to be like that. And so I wanted to um, kind of get into international law and debate and all these kind of nerdy things. That was kind of my deal, and I really enjoyed all that. And then the summer after I graduated high school, um, I was getting ready to go to a leadership discipleship camp that I'd gone to every year. And um, I'm riding around in my car and I didn't get pulled over this time. And so I'm riding around in my car and I just had had a lot going on, you know, just graduated high school, busy, all these things going on. And I wasn't like, walking in blatant sin. It's just that Jesus wasn't really on my radar. I'd kind of gotten a little too busy, which if the devil can't make you bad, it'll just make you busy. And so that was kind of what was going on. And this Rich Mullins song came on. I love Rich Mullins. He's probably my favorite artist of all time. And it's not even my favorite Rich Mullins song, but in the song, he was talking about how he wants to make Jesus his one thing. 
And I just, as I was driving around, I was thinking, that's just not true. That's just not true. Like Jesus is not my one thing. I got about 57 things. And I just remember praying this prayer, like Jesus, I, I, I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but I really want you to be my one thing. Well, fast forward about three days later, we're at this camp, it's Monday night, there's about 1,000 teenagers there, we have like the opening worship service, and the guy who's in charge of programming the worship services, um, I had known for years, and he came up to me about 10 minutes before the service starts, he's like, Adam, I'm in a pinch. He's like, I was supposed to line up a student to give a testimony, and I totally forgot, so I need you. I need you to get up there and give a testimony tonight. I'm like, about what? He's like, anything God's doing in your life. You're on in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh my goodness, like 1,000 people, so... Um, He's like, yeah, you'll do fine. So like I walk up there and um, it was, I, I mean, not eloquent, you know, not good at all, but I just said kind of what I just said to y'all. <laughs> Riding around in my car, listening to Rich Mullins' song, Jesus says one thing, I realize Jesus isn't my one thing. So I just kind of hope this week that, that I can make Jesus my one thing again. That was pretty much it. And it was the next night that God called me to ministry. And I've often reflected upon that. How long had he been trying to call me? But because there were so many other things in my life, I, I, I wasn't hearing from the Lord. But, 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 he, but he called me that night and um, I was like, okay. And so I went and talked to my student pastor who I'm still really close to. He's uh, the lead pastor of a great church in Kennesaw, Georgia, the town we grew up in called North Star Church. And I'll never forget, we sat down and we talked about it and I had 100 questions. <laughs> he said, calm down, take a deep breath, it's gonna be okay. God just called you to a call of availability. He said, don't, don't worry about what you're supposed to do or the job you're supposed to get or a student pastor or a small missionary. He said, God will work all that out. He goes, you just always make sure you're telling God, God, I'm available. And, and that really factored into how God eventually called me here. And I'm gonna share that with you next week. But see, that was a significant moment in my life where I felt like I had this encounter with God. But see, here's the thing, because I, I know the drill. I grew up in church. Okay, I've been in church my whole life. Everybody expects a pastor to give a story like that because y'all all think we have a direct line to God that we just pick up a phone and God says, do this, all right? I get it, all right? So here's what I wanna encourage you with. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have experienced this call to full-time vocational ministry, all these labels that we give, which are man-made labels, by the way, okay? Just hear from God. Just go to God daily. God, what are you trying to say to me today. And if you do that day after day, hey, Jesus, I really want to make you my one thing. I don't know exactly what to do, but I want you to hear my heart. That's my heart. Jesus will be faithful to meet you there. And over time, he's going to give you some stories. And do not discount the weight of your own story, of how you've seen God move in your life. That is evidence that everything you've believed is true, because you're not good enough to come up with that on your own. I'm not a good enough person to say, here's what I think I do with my life. That is the goodness and the kindness of our Lord. So don't discount your own testimony. Last part of our passage today, verse 11. This is the testimony of God. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's the last application for today, it's so good. A believer does not have to fear death because eternal life has already begun. Listen, if you're a believer on God's terms, 
this life on earth is the closest to death you'll ever get. Your eternal life doesn't start one day when you get to heaven. Your eternal life began when you became a believer, when God called you one of his own. In a very real way, this is gonna mess with some of you, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm gonna mess with you to the glory of God. I'm gonna mess with you right now, okay? Death is an impossibility. It's an impossibility. See, when you experience salvation, you didn't go from being a bad person to being a good person. You went from being spiritually dead to being made alive in Christ. Okay? You've left death behind. That season of your life is over. See, when, when you step out of this life here on earth, Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's moving day. You're just changing addresses. You're moving from a temporary location to a permanent home. That's what will happen, okay? That's what it means to have eternal life. You don't have to fear death. The enemy's greatest weapon in the life of a believer is to fear death. And when we study our brothers and sisters from the first century, they actually believed these words. They did not fear death. They literally believed their eternal life had begun and they faced persecution and they faced hardship and Christianity spread like wildfire. See, once the enemy no longer has the fear of death, what's he got? Nothing. But the truth of God's word for a believer is your eternal life has begun. All of this is a result of God's pursuit of you. God's pursuit of you. You you may have been told your entire life you're not worth it. Maybe your entire life you've struggled with inadequacy and insecurity and doubt. Maybe you've had some people who have actually contributed to that. And what I want you to know today is everything we're talking about, God looked at you and he said, you're worth it. Before you were you, God loved you. Let that sit in for a second. Before you were you, God planned you. Before you were you, God saw you in this moment right now. And before you were you, God had already ordained today in your life to have a real encounter with him. God's been pursuing you your whole life. God's been after you your whole life. God's had great plans and purposes for you your whole life. Could you maybe just for a moment today, open your heart and your mind to that? to see those things from his perspective. And so God, we just say thank you. That not only have you given us eternal life, that you call us an overcomer, that we're an unstoppable force, that we have the security of walking with you, that we have the kindness of a good God who's for us. That you shower us with grace that you don't give us what we deserve, that you continue to make a way. God, we don't understand that in our own limited understanding. And so God, in this time of response, speak to us. 
Speak to your children. Help us to experience you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.